1994, TSR put out a box set called First Quest, one of their new line of CD-enhanced game accessories. In addition to having a recording of voice actors playing a game of D&D, <coughs> there were different tracks introduced each location into two separate dungeons detailed in the box set. A sample version of the product was included with Dragon Magazine. Would it sound really sad and pathetic to say that someone working second shift that couldn't get a regular group of players together in 1994 might have listened to this over and over again on the way home at night? What? We didn't have podcasts back then, okay? I was desperate. And now we present to you Thacko with Advantage. Welcome to Thacko with Advantage. We're two friends that have been playing D&D a long time. While we both love lots of other RPGs, D&D is the Taco Tuesday of narrative gaming. Hi, I'm Ange, and I've been gaming for over 35 years. In 2014, I started writing for Gnome Stew, and I've been running the Gnome Cast, the Stew's podcast, since 2017. In 2021, they made me head Gnome. And I'm Jared. I'm the review Gnome at Gnome Stew, and I've been gaming since roughly 1985. In addition to writing reviews at Gnome Stew, I've got my own site, WhatDoIKnowJR.com, where I write additional reviews and opinion pieces on a variety of RPGs. After we look at the games we're running in our campaign journals, we'll be talking about running games for new players, and then we're going to have some recommendations for D&D-related content for you to check out in the Downtime Research segment. Let me just finish up this campaign journal. The most recent session for me was the finale of the season of Depth of Zendrick. My regular group is blessed with multiple good GMs, so we regularly take turns running games since we all like to play too. We definitely plan on returning to Zendrick at some point, but we also need to get to the campaign finale of Tristan's City of Cowles game. That one I'm, I'm really looking forward to because when we went on you know, hiatus from that campaign, demons had invaded the material plane that we all live on. And we had run off to the Celestial Plane to ask for help. And that's where we, we basically stopped. Good cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how this is going to go. You know, the world is definitely going to be a different place. Tristan is actually talking about retiring the setting hmm. after this, because he's he's not sure where else to go with it. But I have a feeling he may get some ideas after he's finished this campaign. But in the last session, the players accidentally, accidentally, released an ancient and powerful quarry that played with them a bit before sauntering off into the world. I say accidentally because it manipulated Vandrith into letting it free. <laughs> the players announced that they wanted to do a long rest because they got the crap beat out of them through all of that they went through. But they also wanted to use Speak with Dead on the giant skeleton in that sanctum that they were pretty sure was the skeleton of Larok. I requested that they discuss in email what questions to ask and finalize so I could prepare answers because there's nothing like trying to come <laughs> up with reasonable answers to questions that the players are coming up with on the fly. How many children were there on, the, on your mother's side? Uh, <laughs> I did actually have to remind them to come up with questions a few days before the game session, even though we said this two weeks before in the last session. They eventually came <laughs> up with four questions and left a fifth open as a follow-up question. So what they wanted to ask was, what is the true name of the quarry? How can we capture or imprison it ourselves? What did you use this amulet and its powers for? Does the quarry pose a specific threat to the people of Zendrik and how can we protect them? And then their final follow-up question was, how do we kill it? <laughs> the first two questions were easy because the quarry's name was Ula Turan. And no, you can't kill it because you're not powerful enough. I.e. level up, noobs. <laughs> uh, the amulet question threw me a little bit because really I just threw it in there as cool thematically appropriate treasure. But I ended up coming up with a story of how Vlerak created it to do one thing but found it didn't do that as well as he liked. So he just used it for the other properties it had. The question on the threat the quarry posed was fun because Speak With Dead specifically says that the being knows only what they knew in life. And Vlerak was alive 40,000 years ago <laughs> when the idea that these small races might be powerful was ridiculous. So his response was very dismissive uh, in saying that the giants can fend for themselves if they're worthy. 
He also fully believed that Dalcor was sealed away, which is where the quarry were from. Uh, but that, of course, is no longer true. But he would have no idea that. So luckily, the players started picking up on that, and I let them make some intelligence insight role type roles, and they are like, "Oh, okay, yeah, that question probably wasn't wasn't the best." And then the question on how do we kill it. Flarek was basically like, anything will die if you hit it hard enough. <laughs> That's a very giant answer, too. Yeah. <laughs> so after they finished that up, uh, they started on their journey back to Chelonia Valley, the home of the Tortles, where they hoped to help the Sierra refugees settle. Now, the valley only got a name that session because I hadn't thought of one, but I realized I really do need to name that valley because it's kind of an important location in the campaign. Along the way, they rolled really poorly for their exploration rolls, so they kind of almost unwittingly stumbled into the encounter I had set up for them, uh, which was basically a burial mound for some giants where all of the skeletons had awoken up based on the release of power from the quarry escaping. Now, being my players, they overanalyzed this and overthought it. <laughs> Admittedly, there were a lot of giant skeletons there, so that could look pretty formidable. But come on, guys, it's me. I'm not going <laughs> to be brutal to you. <sighs> Most of the giant skeletons were minions, which meant you just had to hit them reasonably well and they would go down. And of course, they had Fireball and... Manic actually tried to use Call Lightning. Oh, yeah. Like, he didn't quite listen to the rest of the group, and he set it over a part. And none of the giants actually made it into that part, because working on a scale that makes sense for giants makes things a little weird for the players. Yeah. But it was definitely like, he cast it! <laughs> I don't think he ever actually got to use it. They never really made it into the area where he could affect them, and you can't move Call Lightning. Yeah. So that was a pretty easy fight, all things considered. And then they were going to head towards the valley, where I pretty much expected to wrap up the campaign with some light role-playing as they, they talked with their, you know, their turtle friends and their refugee friends and their boss and, you know, had some scenes with their boss telling him everything that had been going on and set up things for the next part of the campaign. But, of course, I have been playing with, you know, random encounter rolls. <laughs> They're camping. I'm going to roll random encounters. And I rolled 100. <laughs> I've been playing where I roll 90 or higher, something happens. So I had to very quickly scramble to put together something. And I'm like, you know what? I, I had in my notes, one of the random encounters could be a treant. So I had a treant wandering by, and it happened to be on Manic and Perrin's watch. Manic is the druid, so he immediately was like, Hello, tree, let me talk to you because we can communicate. <laughs> and the tree told him that his heart hurt because he had been driven from his home. At which point my players, yay, they're not murder hobos, are all like, we need to help him. <laughs> so they finished their rest for the night and then they went back with the tree, whose name was uh, Thistle Scrub, back to his glade because things had appeared the day before and started fouling his glade, which they're like, Oh, this is totally related to us releasing that quarry, but we're not going to tell him. <laughs> and what I scrambled to put together, like, this was totally last minute. Me scrambling, like, the players are talking to me about stuff, and I'm sitting here typing furiously on my keyboard to put together the encounter. <laughs> it was basically a pair of uh, Hezro demons, which had escaped their stone prison that they had been imprisoned in for millennia. Uh, and were basically using their foulness to mess up the glade and all of that. And that was actually a fun fight, and they had fun basically getting declared tree friends. They did kind of question me a little bit on, why is this treant coming to us for help when he's <laughs> obviously very capable? I'm like, guys... <laughs> I mean, at least Hezrao kind of look like Hulk frogs, so I mean, that <laughs> they look scary, so, you know... You can't blame the tree for being a little... Who are them against one of him? Yeah. You know, and it's not like his shrub friends could really help him, so... <laughs> Eventually, they made it back to the valley. We had some truncated role-playing with everyone, but they still got a chance to talk to Orson, their boss, and, you know, set things up for the next campaign. And I did some follow-up with them on, you know, what did you like? Was there anything you wanted to change? And 
everyone sounded pretty happy with the campaign. So I'm 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 happy with how everything went. That's good. And at some point, even though I know this isn't the end of the campaign, we are going to talk about like wrapping games up either yeah. for a short period of time or a long period of time. But I do like that season idea, you know, where it's like, uh, mm -hmm. we're not abandoning this thing, but we need to draw it to a logical conclusion. So if it is an extended time before we come back, it still feels satisfying. Yeah. And it's, I think there's a lot to be like, it, it will happen that you will end a quote unquote season of a campaign and just never get back to it. Mm -hmm. You know, it happens. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as you ended the season on a good ending note. And mm -hmm. I, I don't want to say good note because you can end with cliffhangers. Those are fun. Yeah. But, you know, as long as you had a good stopping point, it's worth doing, especially when you have a group with good GMs where you want to rotate so everyone gets a chance to run and everyone gets a chance to play. And just in case, like, everybody had been ready to, like, move on to something else, the whole uh, bit with the prison in our campaign was kind of the end of season one if, you know, everybody had been ready to jump off, but everybody mm -hmm. was still on board to keep playing. Yeah. Which is nice because that let us transition into kind of getting into people's personal quests in the next phase of the uh, of the campaign. Yeah. All right, so speaking of our game, it didn't happen. <laughs> but I did run a game that I'm going to go through because it is pertinent to the topic that we're talking about today, and that is the game that I ran for my daughter and her friends, and the fact that 50% of that group is brand new, and two of the people in that group haven't played for years, and the last time they played was 3rd edition D&D when they were much younger. Basically, my daughter and her friends were sitting around. They have a girls' night once a week, and for some reason, D&D came up, and one of her friends was extremely emphatic about wanting to play D&D. So my daughter said, let's ask my dad if he wants to run for us. <laughs> <laughs> and I was actually pretty excited when uh, she first contacted me. It's just taken us a few months to get this off the ground, but now that we've actually played, this is what happened. I got together a bunch of folders for them that had cheat sheets in it and character sheets, and I printed out the pre-gens from Sly Flourish's Fantastic Adventures. And I printed those out in part to use the pre-gens if they wanted to, but also because those have a long list of generic traits and goals and flaws and bonds on it. And I wanted to do that instead of having them get too deep into backgrounds. So even if they didn't use the pre-gens, I was going to let them say, you know, you can pick whatever you want, but here is a list of all of these things that you could pick from. So that was going to be kind of a dual purpose thing. And one of the first things I asked them was, do you want to make characters from scratch? Do you want the full D&D experience of, you know, making characters completely from scratch? Or do you want to get more of an idea of what it's like to jump in and start playing? They wanted to jump in and start playing. They said at some point in the future, you know, you know, maybe after we play this game for a little bit, they'll want to make their own characters, but they really wanted to get the experience of playing. So we used the uh, pre-gens and... Anyone that if you buy any of Sly Flourish's adventure products, these pregens are really awesome because they basically show you what the character has first through fifth level. For spellcasters, that even gives them like all of the spells that they have from first through fifth level. That's pretty nice. Yeah, and it's actually printed out on the sheets. So there is a lot less flipping through books for things. And they're really nice pregens. And then basically you just say, okay, now, you know, look at where, where it says your hit points are at for second level. They're extremely nice. I can't recommend them enough. What was funny is once we decided to go with the pregens, they spent a lot longer than I expected talking about their traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws, which was great because they were having a lot of fun going through the list and say, oh, this would be a good one. I want this one. And they actually started kind of building out their backstory with each other before I even had to prompt them a whole lot. The other thing that I did was I did not actually prep an adventure ahead of time. I am semi used to uh, improving quite a bit, and I figured I wanted to do that because I had more a list of things that I wanted to run them through in the rules than things I wanted to run them through as a specific thing in the game. Like, I wasn't like, I want to make sure they go into a five-room dungeon. I was more thinking, I want to make sure they're used to ability checks, I want to make sure they're used to making saves, things like that. I've done this before at the local game store when I've run things off the cuff, like on a Saturday, where I will get information from everybody and say, Okay, give me about 15 minutes, I'll write up an outline, and then we play through that outline that I do. So that's kind of what I was doing there. I brought the Oracle Story Generator, which I've mentioned on the show before. 
And it's got several decks in it where you pull out different parts of the uh, adventure. Like you can pull out like what the uh, objective is, you know, who hired you, who the villain is. And I brought that with me and I wanted to have a talk with them about genre. So I kind of likened the different decks to different genres and then came up with some pop culture examples of those uh, genres. So like the Contracts and Bounties deck, I said this would be kind of like doing more of a Witcher game where it's like you're mercenaries and you're getting hired to do these things. The Epic Adventures, I said this is going to be more like Lord of the Rings. The Political Intrigue deck would be kind of more like the uh, courtly parts of Game of Thrones. The funny thing was, one of the players, as soon as I mentioned Lord of the Rings, she was like, let's Lord of the Rings this shit. So So I generated the adventure using the, the Epic deck. Our group that we ended up with was a human druid, a human monk, a dragonborn paladin, and an elf ranger. What I came up with from the cards is the group had been given an artifact to take to an undead creature to negotiate so that it would return a dragon's horde that it had stolen. Because the locals are getting caught in all the battles between the dragon's mercenaries and the undead creature's undead minions. That's all I had to start with. Everything else I was filling in based on what they were, you know, what they were feeding me. As you do. As you do. Yeah. And what was hilarious was immediately the party was like, I don't like the idea of negotiating with these undead people. And <laughs> what's very funny is the druid, we determined since the druid was one of the main characters, that this is like small villages on the edge of a forest. And they're ruled by this uh, druid circle, basically. You know, the druid circle makes sure they don't overextend themselves into the forest. And they give them counsel for everything. And they're the ones that decided to do this. And all of them said, I don't like this. We got to figure out some other way to resolve the situation. What I like about that is, I don't like it when you present players with a thing saying, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And they're like, well, why would my character do that? This isn't what they did. They actually said, we want to do this, but we want to do this our way. (laughs) And I like that a little bit better because that's more fun because then they're still very engaged with how they want to resolve the situation. (laughs) One of the things that was funny was the monk had a trait where she would wander off. That was one of the things that she picked on the, (laughs) out of her personality traits. (laughs) So the dragonborn paladin determined that she was from the same religious order as the monk and that she was there to keep the monk from getting into trouble. So she was basically assigned as a bodyguard. She tied a rope around the monk's waist so that the monk can only go so far away from her. <laughs> and the rest of the the rest of the uh, day, the monk was continually trying to slip out of the rope where the dragonborn would not notice it. <laughs> so right off the bat, we had some interesting personality building going on. The party wanted to use a bunch of different skills to gather information. And what was great is the dragonborn just walked up to a table and made a persuasion check to talk to some of the locals. The elf decided to, you know, use perception, stay at their table and just eavesdrop on other people. The monk climbed into the rafters and was just hovering over people's tables stealthily, listening to them. (laughs) The monk is coming across as a little quirky. Just a little. So they ended up hearing a little bit about um, where the dragon's lair is, that the locals don't trust the druid circle. They don't feel like they're defending them. And that there's a wizard that lives out in the woods that probably knows better than the druids. So they headed out to the wizard's tower and tried to break in. They found an illusory wall that was hiding a window to the second story of the tower. And I was waiting for them to say, okay, I'm going to climb up there and try and get, get into the tower. Instead, the dragonborn paladin decided to throw the monk through the window. <laughs> I mean, if you got a monk, you got to yeet it at some point. So they ended up terrifying the wizard's apprentice half to death. The apprentice introduced them to the wizard. And what we ended up finding out through this discussion is that the undead creature does not want a general artifact. It wants a very specific artifact. It is actually working for Vecna and it wants the eye of Vecna. The eye of Vecna was less seen somewhere in this forest. Immediately the group decided not just that they don't want to negotiate with the undead creature. They now want to find the eye of Vecna. I will fully admit this was supposed to just be background story for why <laughs> the undead creature would not be happy with the artifact that they were bringing. <laughs> so the wizard proceeds to explain to them that he has never recovered the Eye of Vecna because he has never trusted anyone enough with its location. They volunteered that we'll go find it. So the wizard has offered his apprentice to go with them. So he will not tell them the location but they were going to walk in a direction and the apprentice is going to act as a compass and he is going to telepathically thump the apprentice every time they get closer to it. So they change direction. (laughs) 
they decided to spend the night in the tower. And on the way in, they noticed that every time someone went through a door in the tower, they would draw a symbol on the door. And the druid was trying to see what that symbol was. And I had her make an arcana check to see how well she remembered the symbol. She did not roll well on this arcana check. <laughs> you know, I was I was looking at that party makeup and I'm like, oh, they uh-huh. think a severe <laughs> lack of arcana. So the druid tried to make this arcana check, did not make the arcana trick, drew a symbol on the door, and they opened the door. And what I had already determined was every door in this tower opens into some extra dimensional space unless it is locked down into opening into the tower itself. So the wizard actually uses this to, you know, to travel to different locations, but it's kind of dangerous if you just open a door and don't know, you know, what's going on there. So they opened the door and it opened the door to the elemental plane of fire, at which point I taught everyone about saving throws. (laughs) So the fire rushes, rushes in. Everyone saved except for the ranger. The ranger caught the uh, the flames from the elemental plane of fire straight in the face. They dropped below zero, and she was afraid. Oh my god, I died. I was like, no, let me explain to you about death saves and stabilizing. <laughs> so many good lessons, purely by accident. Exactly. So they closed the door so there's no more fire shooting into the room, and they healed the ranger, and they stabilized. And unfortunately, that was where... We had to leave off, but everyone wanted to keep playing. Unfortunately, two of the players had somewhere they had to be, so we had a hard stop at that point in time. But they're like, we are so ready to do this again next month, and next time we are just going to start playing the second we, you know, we hit the door, and we want to play for hours because we want, this to, uh, we want this to keep going. And it felt really good to hear them say that. They were all really excited about it. It, it, was, it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. So speaking of that, we're going to move into the Dungeon Masters Workshop. Welcome to the Dungeon Masters Workshop. Both Ange and I have recently run games for groups of players that have either no experience with Dungeons & Dragons or limited experience. So we thought this would be a good time to discuss some of the unique aspects of introducing new players to the game. So Ange, how often have you had to try and teach new people how to play D&D? So I think you could say I've done this a small handful of times. I started trying to teach my pseudo-nieces how to play RPGs when they were quite little. Mm -hmm. I want to say the youngest was maybe five, which means they would have been five, seven, and ten. You know, it went well enough. (laughs) They surprised me with their creativity in some respects and, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. I call them my pseudo nieces because they are my best friend's daughters, <laughs> who I have adored since the day each of them came into the world. <laughs> Regardless of what any blood test might say, they are family. Now, when the oldest was in high school, I ran um, a couple of different games for her, her sisters, and a bunch of her friends. And we did some D&D as part of that as well. I've also facilitated arranging games for new players to try out gaming with experienced players a few different times. (laughs) Usually that goes okay, but it did blow up in my face once, where with my regular Saturday group, we had one person want to introduce one of their friends to D&D, so asked us if we'd play a game with this person, and we said sure. And then it went south quickly when that person... He did not click with our group and he rubbed a few of us the wrong way. Nothing to do with his skills as a player, just there were certain things about him as a person that was like, "Mm, no, no, I don't want to do this. And the member of our group who wanted him in, like, automatically, without talking to us, invited him to be part of our regular group. And there was a bit of drama when I explained that that's not (laughs) how this works. This is not how any of this works. They ended up leaving the game because of that incident, and things were better because of it. But still, it's for the most part, I, I'd say I have, a, I have a small handful of experiences where I have introduced new players to D&D. What's funny is, I, as I was thinking about this, I've actually probably shown people how to play other RPGs a lot more than D&D. I'm not going to go into those, but like that seems to have come up a lot more, especially in recent years. Yeah, and there is a certain degree of when you when when you are a polygamous gamer who plays a lot of games, learning new games is par for the course. There's a little bit of a difference between introducing someone to a specific game if they have role playing game experience than it is introducing somebody who has no role playing game experience to games at all. So, like, way back in the day, I was the one that read the rules and taught the game to my friends, for better or worse, (laughs) as far as I actually understood it, which was not as much, anywhere near as much 
as I realized much later on. <laughs> I taught my kids when they were younger. Two of them joined a game that I was running, so everyone kind of helped teach them as well. My youngest was playing with the two that I taught the game to because she was a little bit younger. She wasn't with us all the time, so I didn't get to bring her along to my regular game in the summers like I did the other two. You know, I ran a few games for the three of them together. And other than family, I've had a few players that were brand new to the game when I was running Adventurers League at the game store. And I've had a few more instances of teaching people that have played earlier versions of D&D to play 5th edition D&D. So that's kind of where I'm at with all of that. What is your current group of newbies like, Ange? When we started, they were all high school juniors with one high school senior. Of the four that started in the game, two had played a little bit of D&D, obviously one of them being my pseudo-niece, and another being a kid who had played some D&D, but the other two had no experience with D&D at all. They knew what it was, but they had never played. Now, they were all students at the local School of the Arts, so were predisposed to being creative individuals to begin with, but they all were also very nerdy with a love of Star Wars and anime and many, (laughs) many other nerdy properties. So my current group of newbies, it's my daughter and my daughter-in-law, and they've both played uh, D&D 3rd Edition like years ago, which is funny because for their age, the fact that the last edition of D&D they played was 3rd Edition is kind of interesting. Yeah. But um, the other two that are in the group have never played any form of D&D, although they're both fans of different fantasy series. The group ranges from mid-20s to very, very early 30s, as in, like, 30. You speak of the, the you know, like, their experience being with 3rd edition, and then having said, and I wonder how many, just as a cursory thought, how many basically set aside gaming at all after high school, mm-hmm. and then didn't pick it up again until later in life, and how many basically obsessively tried to balance playing all the role-playing games and still somehow get through college. Yeah. So how did you end up meeting your newbies? Well, as I said, one of the kids is my pseudo-niece. And so the summer before her junior year, 2021, it was after the worst of the pandemic and we were starting to do more stuff in person. And she asked me at the end of her sophomore year if I would be willing to run a D&D game for her and some of her friends. And I, of course, immediately said yes. <laughs> and so we started that summer playing D&D with them when we could. It was very sporadic because we, we got a couple of sessions in over the summer And then when school started, School of the Arts, they're all in various different activities, got a lot of stuff going on. And then Omicron kind of made things a little more tense and scary for getting together in person. So we waited until spring of 2022, where then we started playing a little more frequently. And we got several sessions in over the summer. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to play since last year because we just couldn't work it out when spring breaks aligned but i do expect us to get a couple of sessions a couple few sessions in this summer before they all disappear off to college somewhere i have to add in that one of them kevin kevin is great i adore kevin kevin basically asked me to be a reference (laughs) for a scholarship he was applying for and i'm like you sure you want me kevin he's like oh yeah 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 and he apparently, once I did this, bragged about it to the other kids in D&D group. That's hilarious. I know a lot of people, college is where they got a lot of their gaming in. Mm-hmm. And for me, when my friends went off to college, because they all went to different colleges, that's kind of where my gaming died for a while. <laughs> See, I know that I obviously started late in high school. I went to college, but my GM did not. And he eventually joined the reserves. And it was when he joined the reserves that I started panicking that I couldn't go without D&D. And I didn't know any other gamers other than the gamers that were in his game. And none of them, none of them were GMs who were going to continue a game. Mm-hmm. So I had to find gamers in college, uh, at which point I found the father of my pseudo nieces. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously I see two of the people that are in my group fairly regularly because one's my daughter-in-law and one's my daughter. The other one is my daughter-in-law's brother's fiance. So I've seen her at family things before. And our other new member is my daughter-in-law's cousin. 
So I've seen both of them at, at you know various family functions before. So I knew them before the girls' night. You know, let's see if Dad will run for us happened. But you know, <laughs> I've gotten to know them a little bit better since then. Did you have any specific goals for your first session with your newbies? I kind of wanted to do a mix of session zero while also being able to give them a taste of what the gameplay is like. I settled on using uh, Dragon of Icefire Peak Essentials Kit for my adventure framework. I honestly didn't want to spend too much time on the world building, basically because I can't do world building halfway (laughs) like if i am crafting a campaign from nothing i am all in and i knew that like it wouldn't necessarily mean anything to any of them so i kept it as very quote-unquote generic fantasy so i wanted to make sure that they knew some of the generic fantasy constructs of playing DD, um explain what what they were seeing on their character sheets but also dive into some actual gameplay. So they all made their characters. We ended up with a human paladin, a dragonborn rogue, a tiefling bard, and an elf druid. Once we got them on the road on their way to the town that would be the basis of their adventures, they got attacked by kobolds. We got a little a little fight in there for them to see how this all works. Yeah, I also didn't want to go too deep into world building, which is why we just had like, you are from generic villages on the edge of this uh, forest, and there is an undead creature on one side of the forest and a dragon on the other side. I am not going to design more than they need for this. Mm-hmm. Originally, I was going to introduce some of the established settings, and I I thought, no, not right now. Yeah. There's no need to get into my decades of knowing about Forgotten Realms and maybe accidentally deluging them with uh, yeah. information that they definitely don't need. I think the extent of it that I went to, into it being Dragons of Icefire Peak is set in the Forgotten Realms near Neverwinter is I'm like, mm. Neverwinter is a really big city. You all came from, you all met in Neverwinter. <laughs> like you could have been from anywhere else, but that's the city you met in when you decided to go adventuring together. And honestly, to me, what was more important was since they were new, I wanted to get them used to the newer concepts that I think are becoming best practices. So I wanted them to know, okay, we are having what is called a session zero. We might play by the end of it, but what we're going to do is talk about what kind of game we want and make sure that, you know, everybody's on the same page with everything first. And we have a chance to ask questions of each other and get comfortable. Mm-hmm. I went through lines and veils. And as I was going through lines and veils, I kind of went through a history of some of the negative things that have been associated with D&D before and things that I'm trying to avoid in it. I specifically went over, you know, how some of the the women that I know that have played D&D and some of the ways that some dungeon masters have treated them and how I definitely do not want to see any of that kind of behavior be anything that they have to encounter. So we had some nice, interesting discussions about how gaming has evolved over time and how every once in a while you might still run into somebody that hasn't evolved as rapidly as the game if they should happen to play with someone else. Yes. I did that. I knew that if we if we did play, if we didn't end up making characters from scratch, I did want to just slowly unroll things. I didn't want to like throw them into a combat right off the bat. I wanted to give them a chance to get used to ability checks first and then you know, get used to, you know, different parts of their character sheet before we went into a full-on combat. I also knew that I wanted to use some iconic D&D-isms, <laughs> even if I wasn't using the Forgotten Realms, which is exactly totally my fault for throwing the name Vecna out there. <laughs> but it was it was great, though, because the two people that had not played D&D before, as soon as I said Vecna, knew of Vecna from Stranger Things. Yep. <laughs> it was great. So how did you plan your first session? So I I got together the materials I would need, which was I, I got good character sheets for them to start filling out all their stuff. I had all of the material that I would need to present to them. I had my battle mats. I had my markers. I made sure I had all my physical stuff to run and be ready to go. One of the other things I did for prep is I basically took We talked about this in running pre-written adventures, but I basically did my own notes of the first three adventures that they could do in that adventure path module, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it. And I think it worked out really well. 
As I said, I knew they were newbies. I didn't want to put too much energy into crafting a homebrew campaign. So I've relied a lot on what is in Dragons of Icefire Peak. Mm -hmm. It's got a good progression of encounters, but it's also got enough freedom for the players to dictate what they want to do. And I think one of the things to remember when you're running for new people, a lot of the action happens inside their imagination and doesn't end up at the table. Yes. It doesn't mean they're not having a good time. It's just they may not know how to communicate it to everyone else at the table like a more experienced player will. Mm -hmm. So they may not seem like they're as engaged, but there's a whole lot going on inside of their imagination. You got to be prepared for that when you're running those first few sessions for brand new players. So I usually go overboard whenever I play face-to-face -face with people. So I have probably somewhat spoiled them for another DM, <laughs> not because I'm so great, but because I will buy um, two pocket folders for people. I'll put character sheets in there. I'll put like whatever handouts I want them to have. So in this case, it was a 5e rules cheat sheet and that page with all of the different personality traits and bonds and flaws. I put all that in there. I got little tiny notebooks for them to take notes with, and I put those in there. So they all had those. And on top of that, I've been stockpiling stuff because I have not run a game face-to-face -face since the pandemic. Everything has been online since then. So this is my first face-to-face -face game. So I took my big book of fantasy maps from Loki uh, Battle Mats over to my daughter's house. I took my, my little character um, tokens over there that uh, Wizards has recently put out. So I could use those. I have extra copies of most of my D&D books. So I took all of my extra copies over there and I asked my daughter, I was like, is it okay if we store these over here so that I'm not going back and forth pulling this stuff all the time? Because, you know, we're running at my daughter's house because she's very proud of her house. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't blame her there. I did not do this for the first session I ran for the kids, but I did end up buying them all their own player's handbook. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Amazon was having a buy one, get one free sale for D&D &D player's handbook. And I'm like, okay, I can't pass this up. So all of them got their own player's handbook. The other thing that I taught all of my players right off the bat was I brought over the dice tower that you can buy at Walmart. And I put this on the table and I said, if you don't want your dice to fly all over the place, you should use one of these. <laughs> <laughs> I know that my brain sometimes when I am running like an established adventure, I will go off on canon things that don't mean anything to them. And I think it's kind of fun for some players that are already engaged with D&D, &D, but I did not want to tempt myself, which is why I decided to go with the entirely improv thing, because it's like, Anything I improv is just going to be based on what they're asking me. It's not going to be me going off on information that exists in my brain about the setting. Honestly, because you're not running an established setting, but you're building it based off of what they're engaging in, you can still do prep ahead of time and start building some of that stuff out. It's just you're not tempted to all of a sudden, you know, go into, did you know about some obscure Forgotten Realms fact that doesn't mean anything to anybody and they, their brains just wander off. And I'm still using certain things that are established in D&D. Like I'm using what the DMG calls the Dawn War Pantheon, which is basically the gods that they had in the fourth edition books, because that's a good compact pantheon of gods. So we're just kind of assuming those are the gods. I did have the wizard go off on a few flowery, deeper tangents about uh, Vecna being the... Uh, first lich and the author of the book of vile darkness and all of this stuff. But I think that was less deluging them with information that they don't need. And more just like building up this, this Vecna guy is, is this is a thing. That was flavor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what do you think is important to impart to people about D and D when you're first introducing them to the game? Ultimately that it is about what is fun for everyone at the table. You want to cover the general concepts of the game, like species class, the way combat works, the way rolling a d20 works, mm -hmm. um, the general basics of a fantasy setting. But if they are truly new to RPGs, you want to emphasize that it is a cooperative game and not something that has a winner or a loser. Mm -hmm. This is something that I think, especially if you're dealing with teenagers, can sometimes get lost in the shuffle. And it's important that they know that it's about everyone at the table having fun. And while D&D may not be the simplest system out there, it is one that attracts new players 
for a variety of reasons. It's well known through other media. It's also one you're more likely to find other players that have experience with the game. And for that reason alone, it can be a fantastic gateway into RPGs, especially with the GM who understands how to make the game fun for their players and how to slowly introduce new players into what role-playing is. I still think the most important aspect is that it is cooperative and everyone at the table needs to be having fun. When it came to mechanics, I didn't want to like just dump a bunch of mechanics on them right off the bat. But I also didn't want to give them the cheat sheet and say, look it up. Basically, what I'm doing is when the mechanic comes up, I will say disadvantage means you roll the d20 twice and you take the lowest one. And it's referenced on your cheat sheet. Don't worry about it. I'm just pointing out these things are also on your cheat sheet. I will explain them to you. But they're also there, so if you want to start, you know, reading ahead, basically, you know, you'll see where, you know, a lot of these things are referenced on there. I don't necessarily think that it is super important for them to memorize a whole lot of rules up front just to get the basics down, which mm -hmm. we really did because we were doing a lot of D20 rules and explaining that, explaining disadvantage and advantage. So we got a lot of that down. When it comes to, like, the very basics of D&D, &D, they already have an idea what elves and dwarves and halflings were. All of that made sense. We did have to explain were things like Dragonborn and Tiefling because some of the free gens were from those different species. And what I kind of liked was I was forcing myself to give these setting free as succinct as possible descriptions of what these were. And it was kind of fun for me to try and come up with Dragonborn were made by dragons to serve them because they don't think any other humanoids would be good enough unless those humanoids are like them. You know, that's what a Dragonborn is. So that's why you look like a humanoid dragon. Or tieflings are, someone in your family was really, really close with somebody that was a demon or a devil, <laughs> and those traits don't come up until a few uh, generations later. <laughs> so things like that. It was actually kind of fun trying to, like, do this in two or three sentences. You know, don't, <laughs> don't go too deep into any of it. Don't go into too long, didn't read. Yes. <laughs> so is there a difference for how you run for newer players versus your more established players? Oh my god, yes. <laughs> I believe we talked about this a little bit in our episode on monsters, but there is a huge difference between how hard you can go on your encounters when you have new players at the table versus experienced players at the table. Your experienced players are going to be more tactically deft. Well, hopefully your experienced players are going to be more tactically deft <laughs> in how they approach any given encounter while the new players don't know the tropes and don't know the general etiquette of how encounters work. Mm -hmm. When I ran my three nieces through uh, their first D&D adventure, I believe it was the Mines of Fandelver. And one of the very early encounters is you're supposed to go into the mines. There are goblins outside. You have a fight with them. So they have their outside encounter. And then they walk in and they see there are three tunnels. There were three of them. They were like, let's split up. We'll each take a different tunnel. I kind of had to stop because they did not understand the concept that any fight you come across in is probably going to be tailored for a group of three to five characters. Um, not to mention, I think Felpheus, the dwarf wizard, only had one hit point <laughs> left after the encounter with the goblins. So I kind of used that as a do you really want to let Felpheus wander off by himself? <laughs> and they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, when I started, um, when I started running this thing, they have not even had a combat yet, obviously, because, you know, we went through the journal, that's all we did. They were having fun making skill checks, so I wanted to let them make skill checks. And, you know, and I kind of layered that on. They made skill checks, then I had them make a group skill check when they started looking for the uh, Wizard's Tower. So, and, you know, I was showing them, hey, you can do this other thing with skill checks where it, you know, depends on everybody. That was important for me. The other thing is when I'm going to have them run into a fight, and I've done this before with newer groups, for experienced players, I want them to feel like they were challenged, like there was a reason they had that fight. I do not care about that at all for new characters. No. New characters, it was like, this is combat. I'm actually toying with having their first combat be maybe one thing that is a fairly easy pushover and maybe some minions <laughs> just so they can, you know, mow through those things and then get to that fight and not have it be really mechanically challenging at all. Just the concept of here is a bigger, sturdier monster and here are the, the lesser things that are fighting around it. Yeah. And you don't want to have their first combat encounter be something too long. 
as you know, experienced players, we all know you can get bogged down in combat that ends up becoming boring because you're just waiting for your turn to come around and it's if the fight goes on for too long, it loses that excitement. And you don't want to do that to new players. Yeah. You know, at the beginning of campaigns before with experienced players, for example, I had a group that, you know, I gave them a bunch of uh, adventures on a adventuring board and they picked one and did no research and they go down there and they ended up running into a bunch of chokers in the, uh, in, in the sewers. And they were like, this was rough. We almost died from this. And I was like, you didn't ask any questions about this job at all. <laughs> you went straight down here. I'm not trying to kill you off, but at the same time, you took a job and asked no questions about it. <laughs> of course you got ambushed by something you weren't expecting. I will say when I ran when I ran the teens through their first official adventure, there were oozes. That got a little scary for me as the GM because I'm like, this thing could kill them because they're not <laughs> playing smart. And yeah. I don't want to teach yeah. them that lesson by killing their character. Oozes have some quirks that people that are used to the tropes of D&D are, you know, more prepared for than somebody that's like, oh, it's an oozy thing. Yeah. <laughs> I had to pull punches a little bit in that fight just to, you know, like teach them, you know, give them more experience on how the combat went. You know, explain to our druid that maybe hitting it with your club is not the most useful thing. It still <laughs> took her a couple of sessions to realize that, you know, no, shillelagh is your bonking spell. <laughs> I want to bonk it. Well, yes, I know, but you have a spell for that. <laughs> yeah. If you are not a primary fighter, you probably have a spell to enhance your bonking for you. <laughs> <laughs> So what are your thoughts on introducing new people to D&D through a mixed group of experienced and inexperienced players? This can actually be a great way to bring in new players, especially if you have a solid group of players who know how to foster cooperative play and support one another. Um, you definitely want to make sure you've got the, the players at your table are good at working with different skill levels. Because I have also had experiences where I've I've like at convention games, like there's a reason I avoid organized play because you show up to play and you don't really know the game that well. And all of a sudden you've got players at the table mad at you because you're not you're not at their level and they don't want to deal with that. And, like, yeah, that's that's not cool. That's not cool. So but if you have a group of players that know how to foster that cooperative play, um, it, it can be huge help especially when you've got one player who takes a newbie under their wing and they do a lot of that heavy lifting for you in explaining what they need to do and in introducing the concept, which lets the GM focus on running the game. Mm -hmm. You still want to introduce concepts to that new player gradually um, and not overwhelm them. But at the same time, it's probably, honestly, it's probably how more of us got our start in gaming um, mm -hmm. than, than, you know, a, your group of newbies. Yeah, I definitely think it's really great if you have other people that are long-term players at the table, uh, especially if they are good at showing somebody what they need to be looking at, and they don't just take over playing the character for the person, which is, you know, something you have to keep an eye on, depending on what kind of experienced person you have at the table. Yeah, yeah. It's really the best type of player to have in it is like the GM's helper. Mm-hmm. It's the player that's all that knows the rules well enough, but also knows when and when not to offer that rules advice to the GM. They're just the player you want to have at your table because they are a solid support for you as the GM. Mm -hmm. Usually other GMs that are just being players for the moment. What was nice is my daughter and my daughter-in-law, even though they haven't played 5th edition and they haven't played for a while... When it came to things like, oh, what's a paladin? Both of them still had that concept in their mind to explain to one of the other players. Yeah. You know, because a lot of the core concepts are still the same, even if the mechanics don't resemble what they played with. The paladin is that guy who walks in a straight line, <laughs> regardless of what boulder is in his way. <laughs> exactly. Oh, so one of the examples that I had where it can be a problem having established players when I was teaching newer people in, when I was running Adventurers League is I had someone that had played AD&D. He hadn't played 5th edition yet, <laughs> but he showed up at the table 
and he starts telling people how they should be playing. For one thing, like he's telling the rogue, you know, rogues do things like keeping some of the gold and not telling the rest of the party about it. To which I had to break in and say, you can do that kind of thing. But when you are playing with new people, part of the social contract is that you're all working together to tell a story and you don't want to do things that are going to introduce adversarial situations. If you are all friends that have been playing together for a long period of time, maybe you might be able to play off certain things like that. But in general, when you're playing with new people, you don't want to play into those types of uh, those types of stereotypes. Don't be a dick. Don't teach new people to be dicks. No, don't. <laughs> so at what point do you start thinking of your newbie players as seasoned players? You know, this is really hard to pinpoint. I think in some ways it's kind of like a parent suddenly realizing <laughs> their baby is a grown-ass adult. And you're like, how the hell did that happen? Uh, you know, I think definitely one point is when those new players start trying to run their own games. My buddy Chris, I started playing with when he was in college, and I was not. I was love past college. But he was in college, so he was a very new player. And it was very gratifying to see him be like, I think I'm going to try and run games. And now he's got like three ongoing D&D campaigns he's running, you know, with other friends and that type of thing. And it's, it's very gratifying to see new players graduate to that point. And it's not saying you have to become a GM to graduate to being a seasoned player, mm -hmm. but it's like that is definitely a sign that you can start calling somebody a little more seasoned. You know, everybody's going to have a different measure for when that hits them. For me, it's kind of like when people start making up their own characters or looking through the books and coming up with their own concepts that nobody else has suggested to them. Like, oh, I really like this, you know, this type of rogue. I, I want to play that sometime. Yeah, I think that's when you feel like you've kind of crossed a threshold and they're internalizing a lot of this to be like, I want to expand and branch out on my own, not just what's been presented to me so far. So have you specifically encouraged your new players to start looking at running games on their own? Absolutely. I try and target the ones that I think would enjoy it. It is my belief that you should nurture and grow the GMs in your own gaming circle. I like GMing. I like playing a little more. And I don't get to play if there are no other GMs. So you want to make sure other people around you are capable and confident in trying to be GMs of their own. And so... I have done that encouragement with people. In the current group of teens, I've been gently nudging Kevin towards thinking about it. I'm not sure he's there yet. He tends to do this thing where he will roll his dice and then he will just look at me with this expression that is supposed to tell me what is on the dice. And I have to remind him that I'm not psychic and I need him to tell me what he actually rolled. And I could see him doing this as a GM, but I also think he is enthusiastic enough and enamored enough to, with the concept of D&D that he could become a really good GM. Mm -hmm. He just needs to use to remember his words. <laughs> so I know like in this group, we're just getting started. So I'm not really necessarily introducing the concept of, hey, one of you should run sometime. But at the same time, my daughter actually has run for her brother and my other daughter. At the time, she was in middle school and extremely vindictive. So... <laughs> So I'm hoping that she learns lessons from that because like when her brother would make her mad, there would all of a sudden be more skeletons that would claw up through the ground. <laughs> there was like an infinite number of skeletons that kept attacking him at one point. In time. Yeah. <laughs> my son and my other daughter both have gaming groups that they run for now. That's kind of neat to see that happen. I definitely want to make sure that when I am running, I am trying to demystify the DM as much as possible. I don't want to present the idea that it is an elite role that only certain people can attempt. You know, as I'm running, I'm kind of showing them, here are the cards. Like, I didn't just pull this completely out of my head. Here are the cards that I use to get some random ideas. DMs sometimes want to have, you know, things that'll spur their, their imagination. Things like that, so that I'm not showing them, like, I am this super elite person that has taken years and has a master's degree in DMing. Although I would get a master's degree in DMing if I could. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if, if it actually led to a career, I, I'd go for that. Were you introduced to D&D &D with the same consideration that you were given your new players? I laughed a little bit even as I was reading that. <laughs> um, now, to be fair, I probably got more consideration than some of my fellow grognards. Because <laughs> I was 17 when I started, and I was introduced to the group by the GM, who knew I didn't have any experience and brought me in. But still, it was the 80s. We were teenagers. 
it very much felt like being shoved <laughs> into the deep end. Oh, goodness. I believe my answer to this would be, oh, hell no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I tried to teach myself the game and ran a couple of very bad games that didn't make any sense. And I didn't know exactly what I was missing. So one of my friends offered to let us watch his brother run his game. We watched this game and his brother was so fixated on all of the horrible things you can do to players. Like you can tell them they're not allowed to level up until they go on a special quest and no one will train them until they do this quest. And just coming up with all these different hoops that you can make your players jump through. And I actually learned a lot about how to run the game that night, but I also learned a lot of that from seeing what I didn't want to do. <laughs> Yeah. Like I saw how certain rules were supposed to work that weren't clicking with me, but I was also going, that is not the type of GMing I want. I, I want this to be like a story that we're all participating in and not me just throwing crap at people and making them jump through hoops because it amuses me. <laughs> yeah. So moving on. No time for rest, you two. Get on with your downtime research. Every episode, we're going to look for something related to D&D that we want to pass along to the listeners. It might be products, websites, or podcasts, but it will always be something that we think will enhance your D&D experience. Now, we have both talked about playing Celasta before. Yes. And it's worth calling out again, as they have a new official DLC coming out this May. I believe it's this May. But I also wanted to give a shout out to the user-created content that's available. I actually completely missed that there was user-created content <laughs> until after I finished the DLC that is already out. And I was like, wait, Jared, did you know that there was user-created content? Yes. And I believe you told me you made, a, you made a simple dungeon to get the achievement that you have made something. I cheesed an achievement by making like a three-room sewer where we fought an alligator. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's, so I started digging into this, and it's a lot like Neverwinter Nights back in the 2000s. Mm -hmm. And I want to give a shout out to Morrow's Deep. It's a full campaign that takes you from first level through 12th level. It's by user Artie Owen. Forgive me if I said your username wrong, but it's absolutely fantastic from start to finish. It definitely makes use of the tools at hand to create an engaging campaign with challenging encounters. And I felt very satisfied upon finishing that campaign, even with surprise dragons. <laughs> we'll have a link in the show notes. I was going to say, even you know, for completely selfish reasons, one of the things that the whole OGL debacle could have done back in January is cut off people using the 5e OGL for video games. And just for the fact that I really enjoy Celasta, I'm kind of glad that things went the direction that they went. Yes. <laughs> I have a feeling they probably put the brakes on their DLC that's coming out this May until that stuff was resolved. Because there would be no reason to put the effort into it. Yeah. If you're not going to be able to profit <laughs> from your time and labor. Oh, yeah, definitely. So um, for my contribution, I wanted to call out Jacob Rogers' Ashen Frontiers Patreon. Jacob Rogers has been involved in developing a lot of unique adaptations of D&D 5e rules for different settings, like Adventures in Middle-Earth, Ruins of Simbarum, the Lord of the Rings role-playing game, which is the new version of the D20 5e implementation of the One Ring, and also Beowulf Age of Heroes which I really love because it's a very interesting solo experience for one DM and one player. This project, Ashen Frontiers, is a Patreon where he's developing a setting that pulls in some of the aspects of Dark Sun, remixes those aspects, and creates something with a similar feel, but with less baggage. <laughs> Which is what you need with Dark Sun. Yes. Um, there's going to be uh, custom classes for this setting with have, which have similar abilities but play on some of the Dark Sun tropes. For example, since bards are the assassins in Dark Sun, he's playing with that with having a rogue class that has a subclass that is an entertainer. There are adaptations in the work for both D&D uh, &D 5e and Pathfinder 2nd Edition, and the site currently has example, an example monster, rules for how the settings defiling and preserving magic works, and an outline for nine-room dungeons, as well as a broad setting overview. So we'll also have uh, links in the show notes for that as well. Nice. 
We are happily part of the Misdirected Mark Productions Network, so we wanted to give a shout out to another MMP show. If you're enjoying our show, also consider checking out... Bonus Experience! Monica and her friends explore gameplay and design through the lens of diversity, while also sharing some of the dumbest humor gaming has to offer. We've used up all of our resources, so I think it's time for a long rest. I hope this adventure was rewarding for you. We hope to see you again when we go exploring next time.